0: Father, thank you for your sovereign ability to control even the elements of nature. As we've just been reminded about from your word that you're able to talk to the wind and it immediately obeys. And it causes us a question of Christ, who is this? He's the son of God. Father, there are so many times in our lives where we are those fearful disciples in the boat and we are wondering where will help come from? When will the storm pass? And I don't understand. I don't see the end. Lord, I pray that in those moments that your sovereignty would be a ballast in our boat, that we would have faith not because of ourselves, not because of changing circumstances, but because of you who rules over all the elements of this world, over every detail of our circumstance. Cause us to be men and women of faith that you have called to walk a life of faith to the glory of your name. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, please turn in your copy of God's holy and perfect word to Genesis chapter Eleven. On July 13th, 1813, a newly married young couple named Adoniram and Ann Judson stepped onto foreign soil in Burma as America's first organized missionaries. Just a few years before that, Adoniram in his late teens had had deep desires to give his life to God for the sake of making his name known in places that God's name had never been heard. London had sent plenty of missionaries to the mission field, but America had yet to form a missionary society to send people on such efforts. But now, in this time, through the faithfulness of local churches and through the Jutsons' willingness to go, America's first foreign missions er- effort was sent on the back of two young adults, both under the age of 25. So imagine America's first missionaries under 25. For any of you kids in the room, if I could just talk to you just for a second. Some of you are going to grow up and you're going to be teachers and you're going to be maybe doctors or builders or manufacturers. Some of you are going to work in the medical fields or some of you are going to work in the construction field and and, in many different ways you may be working. These are all good things, but, but listen, some people are going to ask you eventually, what are you going to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? There are people around the world who have never heard of Jesus. They don't have a Bible like we do. They don't know that God can save them because of what Jesus has done. And I would encourage you, even if you're five, six, seven, eight, nine, right now, to be praying and ask God what He calls you to be a missionary. To go tell people in unknown places about Jesus and what He has done. It's great to be a doctor and a teacher and a builder and all these things. But maybe God would call you, even at a young age, to be a missionary. Teenagers, think about Adoniram and Judson, both under 25 years old. Both decided to be missionaries when they were teenagers. Teenagers, you live in a culture today that gives you a really long runway to grow up on. And my encouragement to you would be don't waste your teenage years in indecision. Don't think, well, I'll just, I'll figure it out in my 30s. The first missionary movement in America started with a group of teenagers. So don't let anyone tell you you're too young. Don't let anyone tell you that life's about you, find a mission for God for the glory of his name right now in your teenage years and set your life to live for it. And don't waste your teenage years. Don't say, I'll figure it out later. God calls you right now to be involved in the Great Commission. And parents, we need to give our kids a vision of God that goes beyond America a vision of God that caused them to engage in the Great Commission right now. See, before Adoniram and Ann were married, 23-year-old Adoniram Judson wrote this letter to his soon-to-be father-in-law asking for his daughter in marriage before they go to the mission field. Just listen to how he asked for her in marriage. He writes to his father-in-law, quote, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this? For the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion, for the sake of the glory of God, can you consent to all of this? in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Fathers in the room, can you consent to this? The father-in-law's response I'll let my daughter make up her own mind. Wow. And so they went. Adoniram and Ann Judson, 1813, went to the mission field, and Ann would die 13 years later in mission. Adoniram would spend 38 years in Burma. He would die at the age of 61 and be buried at sea. He only returned to the States one time in his entire mission. That story makes me ask, how in the world does someone live that kind of life? With such perspective, and here's the answer. There was a call of God and a life of faith. This is the explanation for the life of every Christian, although yours may not be as severe as the Jutsons were. Every Christian, still, here lies a man who experienced the call of God and the life of faith. May that be said of all of us when we die. And this call of God and life of faith is exactly what we see in our text today. So look with me in Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 10. Verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Ark two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Ark 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ark had lived 35 years, he fathered Sheila. And Ark lived after he fathered Sheila 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sheila had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber, and Sheila lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had fathered, had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg, and Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu, and Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarug, and Reu lived after he fathered Sarug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now notice it shifts here. Verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in the Ur of the Chaldeans. And Aunt Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Chapter 12, verse 1, "'Now the Lord said to Abram, "'Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing.'" I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan." When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. We've been studying Genesis, and at this point in Genesis, we come to a turning point in the book. Chapters 1 through 11 of this book serve like a prologue to the rest of the book. If you remember in chapters 1 through 11, we've seen the nations, we've seen the general humanity, and a bird's-eye view of the events of history. We haven't really lingered for a long time on one person in particular But starting in chapter 12, the focus goes from broad to very specific. And for the rest of the book, we're not going to be looking at the generations. We're going to be looking at one family in particular. In specific, the family of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Starting in chapter 12, God shows his plan for history. He's not going to wipe out the wicked people like he did in the days of Noah in the flood. No, here he's going to begin to show... How he's going to redeem people, specifically through one line of descendants. The big picture chapter of of what's going on here is God is going to call one man to himself. And then he's going to use that one man to bring about redemption for the, the world. And in many ways, the whole Bible is explained by what happens here in calling Abram to himself. Now, I want to set the stage for what's happening here as we focus on one family in particular. You heard me read at uh, uh, at the first part, verses 10 through 26 of chapter 11, this genealogy of Shem, just name after name after name of who fathered after who and who came after whom. I'm not going to cover that section in depth this morning. What I just want to remind you of these genealogies in the Bible often serve as like a fast-forward feature they speed up history and they bring us to the next climax in God's redemptive history. And so we read through a bunch of names and then all of a sudden it slows down as we hit Abram. Why would it do that? Because Moses, when he's writing, he, he wants us to see that Abram doesn't just appear in thin air in history. He's connected. He's tethered to actual history of, of descendants. But he wants us to pay particular attention to Abram because it's through Abram That he's going to bless the nations of the world. To many, behind Jesus, Abraham is arguably the most fundamental figure in the Bible. This makes it a little intimidating to talk about him. What can we say that would measure up? Before we get to the call of Abram specifically, look at the background the text gives us in verse 27 to 32 says, these are the generations of Terah. Terah followed Abram, Nahor, Haran. Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in the Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Isker. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Verse 31, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years. There's details here that we need to know about as we look at the call of Abram. So here's the setting. You have one father taking one of his sons, With one of his daughter in laws and a a grandson, and they're going on a journey. They're not just going on a vacation, they're going on a journey to set a new life for themselves. This is three men and one woman hitting the road to a new life. And there's a few details we want to look at in particular. Number one, they leave from Ur and go to Canaan. Now, this isn't just a move down the road, it's not like going from Greer to Duncan. This is a thousand-mile journey to a completely different region. They are making a completely new way of life. Second, verse 30 tells us that the daughter-in-law who's on the journey is barren. Now, that might seem like a random, irrelevant detail, but it's not. You need to hang on to that. It's going to come up again in a minute of why it's important. So you have these three men and a woman hitting the road on a journey. The woman is barren. And look at the last detail. It tells us in verse 30 and 31 that on their way to Canaan, they decide to stop and settle in Haran instead. And then the final detail is on their journey to Canaan, they stop at Haran and they stay there for some time. And Terah, the patriarch of this small family, Dies, And so notice, all we have left now is one son, Abram, one wife, Sarai, who's barren, and a nephew. They're living in Haran, and they get this call, chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now think about this. God promises Abram, your name's going to be great. You're going to have descendants after you. You're going to be formed into a great nation. Listen, if, if you want to multiply descendants, if you want to have offspring come after you, the combination of family members that you least likely would pick would probably be an old man, a barren wife, and a single nephew. And yet this is who God picks. Go to Canaan, I'm going to make you a great nation. He singles out one man to start his plans for redemption history. He focuses on Abram and through Abram he's he's going to save a multitude of nations. As we examine this call of Abram, we can learn about the call of God and the response of faith. So this is the main point of the sermon. For every Christian, there is a call of God and a response of faith. A call of God and a response of faith. Consider with me now two characteristics of this call of God. First, the call of God is a sovereign initiative. The call of God is a sovereign initiative. There are two aspects of this sovereign initiative. First, we see the unconditional election of God's grace. The unconditional election of God's grace. Look at the first six words of verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Why? did God choose Abram? Out of all the people on the earth, I mean, he could have chosen Abram's brother. He could have chosen another man from another tribe. He could have chosen someone who's already in Canaan. Why Abram? Why does God think, I'm going to have my redemption plan for history, I'm going to bring one man here, and he's going to bless the nations, and it's going to be Abram of Ur of the Chaldeans? Why? Now, we may be tempted to think, well, Abram was righteous. He was a godly man, and, and that's why. But actually, Joshua 24 gives us more details and tells us that Abram and his family were idol worshipers. They were pagans before God called them. See, it wasn't because of Abram's love for God and therefore God chose him. It wasn't because he earned his way into privilege with God. He was an unknown idolater in the desert. Instead, God chooses Abram even when Abram was far from him doing his own thing, worshiping other gods. I wonder if you remember when God called you. What were you doing devoting your life to and worshiping. We see here the unconditional election of God. And when I say unconditional election, here's what I mean. God did not choose Abraham based upon any condition found within Abram. It wasn't his love for God. It wasn't his intellect. It wasn't his name. It wasn't his faith. God chose him unconditionally, unattached from any merit within himself. Why did God do that? The short answer is because he wanted to show him mercy. You can say, well, why did he want to show him mercy? Because listen, it brings great glory to God for him to show mercy to a people who do not deserve it. And if we want to go deeper than that, we will only frustrate ourselves. We can say, well, well, why did he want to show mercy to him in particular and brothers and sisters we must be content to receive God's answer Romans 9 15 talks about the dynamics of this sort of election God says I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion John Piper writes this, quote, God zeroes in on one man and in complete sovereign grace, God comes to this undeserving idolater and says, with life-giving authority, I'm gonna bless you. John MacArthur says, why did God choose Abram? God cho- chose Abram because he wanted to choose Abram. Kevin D. Young summarizes it like this, quote, the first thing we see in this passage is the principle of election at work. Why Abram? We can come to no other reason than God. God decided that he would pluck Abram from his family out of Ur of the Chaldeans, make promises to them, and send them to Canaan, simply God's sovereign pleasure and purpose. Friends, there's only one reason why God chooses. His sovereign grace, and he dispenses it freely to whomever he wills. And where does this land for us? Listen, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ today, fundamentally, primarily, ultimately, it's because God at one time executed a sovereign initiative on you and called you. Not because of your love for Him, not because of your faith, not, but to, not because of your intellect, not because of your smartness, not because of your goodness. God in his mercy looked on an undeserving sinner and said I'm going to bless you follow me and we can ask the question of ourselves why did God why did God call me simply because he wanted to show you mercy this is this is humbling the only response to this kind of teaching in the bible Is the furthest thing away from pride. The only response is hand over the mouth, just thankfulness. Imagine where you would be if God had never called you. The second aspect that we see from God's sovereign initiative here, yes, the unconditional election from his grace. Second, the undeserved blessings of God's grace. Look at verse 2 and 3 of chapter 12. He tells Abraham, I'm calling you out and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and in him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice the undeserved blessings just poured out on this man called from Ur. I'm gonna give you a land, I'm gonna make your make you a great nation. I'm going to give you other blessings. I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to make you a blessing to others. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to give you a legacy. I'm going to make sure your thumbprint is on all the families of the earth. And Abram must be thinking, who am I to be receiving these blessings? And what did I do? And this is the point. This is the goodness of God washing over undeserving sinners, just pouring on more and more of his sovereign gifts. Notice this is what the people of Babel wanted last week. And we want to be known. We want to be strong. We want to have a nation. We want to to have a legacy for a name for ourselves. And God doesn't give it to them, He gives it to a random guy in the desert. This is the goodness of God shown to every undeserving person he calls. And you say, Well, how do I know if he's calling me? Listen, do you want to come? Do you want God? Do you want to forsake your worldly passions in the flesh and the desires for sin? And do you want to turn to Jesus and say, I want you? Listen, people who want God, and genuineness is because God has called them and those who never want God they say I don't want anything to do with him I prefer the world instead I'm going to continue to go this way I don't have time for him, them or him That's how you know how do you know if you're called do you want God Jesus said in John 6 37 whoever comes to me I will never cast out do you want him Do you want to come to him? When God calls, when the sinner comes, God gives undeserved blessings pouring out from his overflowing, effectual, calling, freely dispensing grace. This is why believers in the room, we should be marveling and worship in light of the position God has put you in today. Do you remember the darkness he called you from? Can you imagine the darkness you would have fallen into? Marvelous grace. There was a, there's a general call that goes out to everyone who will hear. Repent, believe the gospel. If that's you this morning, repent, believe in Christ and what He has done. There's a general call. But listen, when you repent and believe, it's because at that moment, God made His call effectual and did a work in you. In this text, we see, yes, the characteristics of God's call. It's a sovereign initiative. But look, second, the call of God is a summons to respond in faith. Look at the start of verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Just notice the simplicity of God to call Abram and Abram to respond in simple faith and obedience. God said go and Abram goes. And then in verse 4 through 9 we see this extraordinary exercise of faith from Abram. What does it look like to respond to God in faith? First, Faith is leaving all behind and following God. Look at verse four. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 75 years old. Established in Haran, settled into a routine. He's probably thinking, I already had my one big move, God. God. My adventures are done. I just lost my father. You know, I need stability. I need security. I need retirement. I don't have kids to take care of me when I get old. I'm on the back nine of my life. I'm absolutely not. Those days are done. I am done. It would have been easy for him to reason like that. And he doesn't. What does he do? He forsakes his life in Heron. He picks up his things and he starts traveling, can get this to a place that he still doesn't yet know. This is the picture of faith and the other side of repentance, leaving the former behind and turning to go to God. And if you've never trusted in Jesus, there is a call from God to leave your former sins behind, your life and sins behind and turn to Jesus, to look at Jesus dying on the cross to say, I deserve that because of my sin, but Jesus took my place to see Jesus rise from the dead, to say he's given me new life because I'm trusting in him. This is the call of God to forsake behind the past and turn to Jesus in faith. If you've never done that, I invite you to do it right now. You don't have to wait till in the service. You don't have to wait till this week. Call out to God right now. I, for, I, re- I repent, I'm a sinner, and I need Jesus to save me, and he will. Second, faith is trusting God with unanswered questions look at verse 5 and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people they had acquired in Haran and they set out to go to the land of Canaan imagine the questions Abram and Sarai must have had when God called them to go I'm 75 what about all this stuff What about this land? What are our travel logistics? What are we going to do with all these animals? How are we going to have the work help we need? And by the way, what are we going to do when we get there? And why Canaan? Remember that awful, cursed city? Anywhere but there. Now, Abram didn't have answers to these questions. He's completely walking into the unknown, and yet he still walks forward in faith. Listen to how Hebrews 11 describes his faith. By faith, Abraham Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. It's amazing. And this is often the life of faith. The life in every day with God where you don't understand everything. You can't see all of the purposes. You have unanswered questions. You say, why did this happen? Why did God allow this? Perhaps some of you are in seasons of life right now and you have tons of questions and very little answers. Listen, in these times, remember that in the times of unanswered questions, it doesn't mean God doesn't have an answer. And God doesn't call you to follow him when you have all the answers. God calls you to follow him trusting that he does. Following God even when we don't have clear answers. Third, Faith is trusting God even when you can't see. Look at verse six. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Imagine Abram and Sarai, they're on this walk of faith. They finally get to Canaan and it's full of people. Like, are you kidding me? I left everything I knew. I, I traveled 400 miles. I fought the elements. I dealt with these screeching and stinking livestock. You promised me a land and now I'm here and it's full? Imagine going on vacation and you walk into your rental house and everybody's chilling on the couch. What are y'all doing here? Oh, we're here with you guys this week. No, this is my house this week. No, no. He goes to the land of Canaan, and it says, "At that time, the Canaanites were in the land." Abram must look around, seeing all the Canaanites, and wonder, "I don't see how any of this will ever be mine. I'm an old, mon- I'm an old man with a wife, a nephew, hired workers. The Canaanites are not just going to hand over their land." Have you ever been riding with someone, and they decide to take a back road, a shortcut? To the destination, and as you're traveling, you're thinking, I have no idea where I am. You're like, where are we? And they say, you don't recognize it? No, I I don't have a clue. And they say, what? Just hang on, you'll know where you are in a minute, right? You go a little bit further, and they say, do you know where you are yet? No, I don't have a clue. Just hang on, you'll know in a second. And all of a sudden, everything clicks, and you're like, oh, now I know where I am, right? You've had that experience, what does God's word tells us? The life of the believer is just this, walking by faith and not by sight. Sometimes you'll be on the walk of faith and you'll be wondering, I can't see how this is gonna turn out for good. I cannot see the end destination. Sometimes we'll be able to see just 10 steps in front of us. Sometimes we'll only be able to see one step. And yet God says, continue to watch, continue to wait. Wait you'll know where you are in just a moment. Many of you can attest to experiences. You can look back and you can see the hand of God. You can think of a time where life was really hard and you had a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of things you couldn't explain and you continued to trust and now you look back and you say, what, I can see how the hand of God was working. Some of you are in the moment right now and you can't see two feet in front of you. Keep waiting, keep watching, keep walking in faith. God will lead you through again and again. Fourth, faith is trusting God with the impossible. Look at verse seven. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. Perhaps at this point, Abram says, you know, God, you keep referencing my offspring. A nation's gonna come after me. But just so you know, Sarai, my wife, is barren. We can't have children. We're old. We've tried. You should have picked Nahor and his wife. They would have been a better fit. And this is not what Abram says. Instead, he continues to go forward, trusting God will be able to do what seems impossible to them. So a word to the moms and the ladies in the room. Imagine the pressure Sarah must have felt. The heartache. How many times she must have questioned, why? And everybody around me is having kids. Why can't I? The frustration, another month, no pregnancy, another cycle, just trying to time things just right. The frustration of, why God? And some of you have known that. Maybe some of you know that now. Listen, I want to encourage you, God has not forgotten you. Just like he didn't forget them. God doesn't make mistakes. His timing is perfect. His plans are intentional. His purposes are always good. And the biggest battle for faith that you have right now is to believe that in the darkness. What might seem like an impossibility is not impossible. And listen, if God chooses not to give you that gift, to have the faith, the trust, that his ways are higher than yours, that his purposes are better than you can fathom, that he's not withholding joy from you, but he's preparing for you a bigger and better joy that's going to glorify his name in ways that you couldn't imagine. And as hard as it is in the moment, keep walking by Faith. We sang the song a minute ago, Blessed Assurance, written by Fanny Cosby, who was blind. She said that she would not take the gift of sight if someone offered it to her. Why? She said, because if she had sight, she may not be able to worship God in the way that she has worshipped him as a blind woman. What a perspective. For moms in the room, the greatest model you can live for your kids is a walk of faith that's not dependent upon everything going just right. The greatest model of faith that you as a mom can put before your kids is that when everything seems to go wrong, you have a high view of God that says everything is going according to God's plan for His glory. To be a mom that presents a high view of God to your kids is a mom that is highly esteemed herself. Continue the walk of faith. By this point, Sarai's probably accepted her barrenness, but God says, I'm not done yet. And fifth and finally, faith is continuing to worship even in the midst of the unknown. Look at the second half of uh, verse seven. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, Eol on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Just think of the situation. He's left everything he's known. He's gone to be an unknown resident in an unknown unknown land. The land he goes to is full. His wife is battling monthly discouragement of barrenness. It would have been easy to look around and say, none of this makes sense have you been there? It doesn't make sense. I can't see how it's going to work. Where is God? What do you do? What do you do in that moment? Continue to worship in the midst of the unknown. Even though Abram faces all of the unknown above, he doesn't give up. Instead, he responds in worship. He builds two altars. See, the formal tabernacle that would house the presence of God on earth in worship wasn't built yet. And so these patriarchs would often build these altars as places marking worship of Yahweh. And he doesn't have the fulfillment of all the promises, but notice what he has, verse seven. The Lord appeared to him. And verse eight There he called on the name of the Lord. He has unfulfilled promises, but he has the presence of God and the listening ear of God. And I wonder, listen, in your moment of mystery right now, whatever it is, is that enough for you? The presence of God and the listening ear of God. Whatever mysteries you're living in, whatever circumstance you're walking through, ask yourself, is God enough for me? This text shows us the sovereign call of God and a summons to respond in faith. God is setting the stage for redemption history. All of his plans to reconcile the world to himself starts right here and depends on the life of Abram. Here's what I would caution you believers in the room. You're not walking to Canaan. God's not appearing to you like he did to Abram. We have the revealed word. God calls you to walk by faith in the revealed word, trusting in him still. It's not gonna look exactly the same in how God speaks to you or, or calls you, but it's still gonna be the same in God calling you and, and, and you responding to walk in faith. I started with Adoniram and Ann Judson's life. I'll, I'll finish with their story as a model of faith. God called them and summoned them to a life of faith and their result of that life was anything but a life of ease. See, there's, there's a, 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 a prosperity gospel out there that says if you believe, if you respond in faith, then you can get everything you want in this life. You can live heaven on earth. You can have your best life now. Listen, it is not true. The Jutsons lived a life where They took six of their kids on the mission field. Six of their kids died. Adoniram lost his first wife, Anne. He then remarried, lost the next wife too. He was put in prison. His feet were put in chains. He was strung up and, and, and was hanging all night with only his head touching the ground. The life of faith, the walk of faith is not easy and most of you will not experience that sort of persecution I dare not say none of you will most of you won't but it's still not a life of ease but it's a life of faith and listen the Christian life is not a life where we look to this life to experience the the ultimate joys we look to the next life a life we cannot see now but a life God has promised and we walk in faith let's pray Father, thank you for your sovereign call. Thank you that even right now, your call is going out. Or I pray that your spirit would be active now, even in calling a sinner to yourself. I pray for believers in the room who are discouraged and they're looking around and They want answers and they don't have any. They're disheartened. They're tired. Lord, I pray, God, that you would strengthen their resolve to continue walking by your grace. That they would indeed walk by faith and not by sight. in whatever circumstance they're in, whether if it's a job situation or a sickness or a family situation, or something else, Lord, I pray that you would give them the grace to walk in faith, trusting that what you have in front of them is better than what they could prepare for themselves. Make us a, a faithful people who live out our, lives out our faith in the midst of a faithless world. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.